morning, everyone. Um, the verses we're reading this morning are on the back of your service sheet. We're in Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village and in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it, some of, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. Uh, you're very welcome again to Foundation Church, particularly if this is your first time. Um, we, we have, as a church community, been working through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament over the last year and a bit, actually. And, uh, and so we're coming back to it this year. <clears throat> we, we sort of paused to, to look at some of the essentials of what happens when we come together uh, just before Christmas and the stuff that we do and why we do what we do. And then, um, uh, so as I say, now we're coming back. And, and the reason why we're looking, uh, taking a really careful look at the Gospel of Mark over such a long time is because we really want to understand as a community more about this man, this person who is at the center of the church, who is at the center of Foundation Church. Um, he, he, is the, he is the basis of our community, right? He's, he's the one who forms our community and sustains us. We talk about him, we sing about him, we, we, we say we want to follow him. So it's really important for us, I think, as a community to understand who he is, uh, what he says, and how do we follow him. Um, because if, if we're going to do anything as a church, we want to make sure that we're at least uh, following the one who is at the center of the faith, right? There's no point in having Jesus over here and then us doing our thing over here and the two are very, very different. We have to understand what does Jesus say and do. And uh, particularly if you're, an, you know, if you're, if you're not uh, a regular here at Foundation, you're looking in from the outside, uh, maybe you're a person of faith, uh, maybe you're just looking for a church, um, any option is fine. We're, we're so glad you're here. Um, but I think all of us can, can, can learn together and ask ourselves a little more about this Jesus who is, is such a big deal uh, to us at Foundation Church. Um, and so we're going to be looking through these verses here, and, and we're going to be thinking under these three headings, uh, number one, ex- expectations, number two, disappointment, and number three, surprise. So the expectations of Jesus, disappointment with Jesus, and surprise at Jesus. All right, and that'll uh, take us about half an hour to get through those. First of all then, expectations of Jesus. Now, we've just had read to us by, by Sharon um, the, the event that marks the final phase in Jesus' mission. In fact, uh, from chapter 11 right through to the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16, that's, that's you know, uh, a third of the gospel um, account, um, 
That third focuses on the final week or weeks of Jesus' life. So, so the narrative uh, from the beginning of Mark's gospel to now has been going really fast. Immediately this, immediately that. Jesus was here, Jesus was there. But now it slows right down. And what Mark, uh, the gospel writer, is doing is focusing our attention on what he considers to be the most important few days in Jesus' ministry. They're all important, but this is the focus that Mark wants to to point us to. Uh, A few um, chapters earlier, Jesus uh, ascended a mountain. Uh, uh, um, The the glory of God came down on that mountain. Uh, Jesus' uh, appearance was, was, was... um, made like almost like uh, glorified, like an angel or something like that. It was called the transfiguration. It says his appearance changed. It became radiant. Um, a couple of his disciples were with him. And uh, God spoke from the, the cloud of glory that sort of surrounded Jesus and said, this is my son, listen to him. And then uh, as quickly as it started, it was over. And Jesus was stood there with a few of his close disciples. And then they went down the mountain. And so that sort of coming down the mountain from that real high point really sort of marks the beginning of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. On the way, on the way, on the way, gathering momentum, gathering a following, kind of like a snowball, you know, gathers uh, pace and size as it goes down the mountain. So too, as Jesus um, gets towards Jerusalem, the crowd, it appears, starts to gather. And so uh, that's where we come in then at the beginning of uh, Mark chapter 11. And this is Jesus. It's called Jesus' sort of triumphal entry. We'll we'll, we'll tackle that in a minute. But here he is, it says in verse 1, drawing near to Jerusalem. And of course, um, maybe maybe you're aware, maybe you're not, Jerusalem is the capital uh, city, the great ancient city of of Israel, uh, known as Palestine at that time by the the Romans. Uh, Jerusalem and the whole area was was under occupation by the, the, the Roman Empire. But uh, still they had freedom to worship. And at the center uh, of the city was, was the grand old temple, uh, the center of religious activity and religious faith of the Jews. And, and so it says in, in, in verse 1 that Jesus was drawing near to this place, to Jerusalem, and uh, he sort of seems to stop in, in Bethphage and Bethany, sort of two little towns that are sort of connected, I guess like, uh, I don't know, Lisbon and Castlereagh or something like that, Borough Council, you know, uh, Combernards, that type of thing. But anyway, they were sort of connected but different, if you know what I mean. And, um, and, and Jesus sort of set up shop there uh, for uh, the future week that he's about to go through. And uh, Bethany was a familiar town to Jesus. He'd been there before. Some of his closest friends lived there, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You know the story of Lazarus, who was actually dead, kind of stinky, uh, from the grave, and, and Jesus spoke to him and rose him from the, from the dead. That all took place in Bethany, where he currently is. And it's on the other side of the, the Mount of Olives, if you think of the, the city of Jerusalem, uh, separated um, on, on the east side by a sort of range of small hills or, or what have you, uh, and one of those was called the Mount of Olives, and on the other side of that then is, is Bethany and, and Bethphage, where they are currently located. So that's your geography, right, east of the city. And uh, there they are. And it seems to be that in this text, Jesus is planning his official entry, his official arrival into Jerusalem. It's kind of like how kings or dignitaries or, or state visits would have happened. You know, there's a significant official arrival. And here's how he does it. He says in verse 2, uh, he gives instructions to uh, his disciples. And he says to them, like, go into the village. You're going to find this colt, uh, probably a young donkey. A colt can actually... Um, can actually mean a young donkey or a young horse, but, but we think it's a donkey, most likely. Um, anyway, when, when I found this young donkey, um, donkeys are much easier to come by, by the way. Uh, horses were less, less hard to get hold of, less, less easy to get hold of. And um, uh, go find this donkey, go untie, untie it, and bring it here. 
And it's important, by the way, that you find the one that has never been ridden before, right? Because no one can ride the king's horse. It's the king's. No one's allowed to ride it. So that's why the emphasis on, on, on one that hasn't been ridden before. And in verses 4 to 6, then, after they got their instruction, these sort of two unnamed disciples did as they were told. They went to the town. Uh, everything was as Jesus found it. They, they untied the colt. They took it back to Jesus and said, right, here is your colt. And uh, because this, this, this creature was, was never ridden before, it was a young donkey, um, a few of the disciples took off their, their cloaks, put it over the colt, you know, it had no saddle on it or anything like that, popped it over the, uh, the, the animal's back. Other people, it says, put uh, cloaks on the road. Still others went into local fields and cut down leafy branches and spread them out on, on, the, on the road, on, on, the, on the rough road that would have taken Jesus from where they were into Jerusalem on the back of this young donkey. And, and the reason why they were laying their cloaks on the road and, and putting down uh, you know, leafy branches, palm branches, um, what, what, what was as a mark of honor. You know, they wanted to make his, his way smooth. Um, make way for the Lord. Make way for the king. They wanted to give him a smooth passage uh, and uh, get him to Jerusalem. And so it says there, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of this, this young donkey. And before him, you know, in front of him, and behind him, it says in verse 9, um, there were those who, who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means, save us, we pray. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. These were like the, the shouts and the cries and the praises of these people as Jesus made his way on the back of this little donkey on the way into Jerusalem for his official state visit. Those of you who were with us for our Christmas carol service just before Christmas, um, you're, you're, you'll be familiar perhaps with, with, with some of this. Um, it, it all leans on this prophecy that we looked at uh, before Christmas from Zechariah 9, one of the great Old Testament prophets. And in Zechariah 9, verse 9, uh, the prophet prophesied many hundreds of years earlier. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. This is how your Messiah is going to appear, said the prophet many centuries earlier. This is what the king will look like. So you, so you can imagine then, can't you, the, the interest, the excitement, the energy uh, with the crowds that had gathered over the, over the days running up to this point. The chanting, right? the, the cheering, the, the singing of these songs. He's coming. He's here. This, this noise. Celebration and announcement. The king is coming. The Messiah is on his way. And don't forget, this is also on the, the, the run-up to Passover, which was a major festival in the, in the Jewish calendar. And so there would have been extra people in the city of Jerusalem coming, gathering, getting ready for the, the festival of Passover. There would have been onlookers staring, talking, asking, what are they on about? Who's this guy on the donkey? Talking with the crowds, maybe adding even their voices, maybe getting on board with the, the, the show as it rolled into town. So add all this stuff together. You've got this king-like figure, um, with all this sort of messianic, you know, prophetic symbolism. You've got the crowds in raptures around, shouting. The expectations are high. Right? He's going to do something. He's going he's to come into Jerusalem and do something awesome. He's going to start the revolution. The kingdom of God is coming. Of course, all, all this meshes um, in many ways with what we've been learning so far as a community in the Gospel of Mark. Um, 
you can you can go back by the way and look look online or you know various podcasting whatever way you listen to podcasts but you can listen to the earlier series and, and find out what we're talking about here um, but at the start of Jesus ministry um, he, he, he started with this sort of big idea and, and when Jesus arrived on the scene a few years earlier he said this the time is fulfilled right it's here the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel that was a, that was the big idea of Jesus teaching and his actions all under that heading the kingdom is coming and he, he showed that, and we've seen this, haven't we? He showed that by healing the sick. This is what the kingdom looks like. No more sickness. He, he showed that by casting out <clears throat> demons. This is what the kingdom looks like. No more evil. No more oppression. You know, he, he showed it by teaching them words of life. He, he showed that by demonstrating he had power over nature. He could even calm the storm and walk on water. The blind could see with, with, with Jesus. The sick were healed with Jesus. The lepers were cleansed with Jesus. The oppressed were set free with Jesus. He showed what real religion looked like in contrast to the stuff they were being fed from the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and all those guys. Jesus brought a sense of revival, a sense of anointing. And up until this moment, he'd pretty much kept his identity secret except among his closest friends. But now, for the first time, he allows, he welcomes the shouts, the cheers, the, the proclamation of the crowd. Son of David, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the, the exciting thing, I think, for us as a church, and we've seen this again time and again, um, is that what we have seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus started when he came and he preached, and he acted and he gave his life. That is still valid today. Right? The, the kingdom that Jesus came to bring is still active today. It's still moving today. <clears throat> still advancing. And this is the great part. The, the, the story that started in the book of Mark continues today. And so therefore for us as a community here in the 21st century, we have a real reason for hope because of what we're reading here. Okay? Faith can rise because of what we're reading here. Expectations in Jesus can grow because he's the real deal. He healed them. Maybe he can heal me. He calmed the storm for them. Maybe he can calm the, the storm that's raging around me. Right? He restored those people. Maybe he can restore today. He saved. Maybe he can save today. He, he released. Maybe he can release us today from oppression so I wonder um, as, you, as you sit here this morning what, what are your expectations of Jesus in 2022 what do you expect from him, what, what, what are your expectations I just want to challenge you um, particularly those of you who are, you know, who are sort of on, on a journey with us here at Foundation be open this year to, to what Jesus can do right? his ex Allow your expectations to grow when you read this stuff. Uh, allow your expectations in him to be refreshed, to be, to be reset. And if, you, if you're not part of Foundation so far, again, we just love you to, to join with us, to journey with us, because we're, we're a church that is formed and, and shaped around this Jesus, and it is an exciting place to be. So expectations of Jesus, and they're so high, aren't they, in, in this verse here, in these verses. But now I want to deal, secondly, with disappointments. 
disappointment with Jesus. And, um, you know, I, I think that this is a reality that, that, that we just have to acknowledge. Um, otherwise, we'll end up with a false view of Christianity, the Christian faith. Um, we'll just think there's one high, you know, one high of miracles and, and, and glorious moments. And, 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 and those things do happen. They do come. Praise God. But we have to be real and acknowledge that disappointment is a reality, particularly you know, for, for anybody, but for those of us who follow Jesus and name his name. And, and I think, personally, I think it's one of the hardest bits about being a Christian by being a follower of Jesus is dealing with disappointment. Um, Mark writes so superbly in, in this. He's so clever in what he does here. Um, he builds us up, right? He gives us these, these images, these pictures of, of uh, these soaring expectations. The crowds are reaching fever pitch. There's clamor. Something big is about to happen. You know, some glorious moment is about to come. Then look down at verse 11. He entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. And when he'd looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I mean, what? (laughs) After all that, after all the hard work and and the crowds, he was late. And he went in and had a little look around, just like you go to a museum just before closing time and sort of rush through it because everybody else is away. And then he goes home again. What a total anticlimax. I mean, it's, 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 like, it's worse than the last episode of The Line of Duty, is it not? And that was terrible. I was so gutted for like three days. I was so disappointed. Just a massive disappointment here. It just fizzles out, the whole thing. It was supposed to be awesome, and it came to nothing. So where did it all go? Maybe it was just badly timed. I mean, he says it was late. Uh, maybe he just set off too early. If he had set off earlier, he would have caught them at, you know, just after lunch, and it would have, there would have been piles of people. Maybe it was just poorly orchestrated, right? Those of you who are like the, the structural thinkers among us, you know, the, the, uh, the analytical people, just say, okay, fine. Let's, if you'd just gone earlier, if you'd come in this route here, if you'd gone through that gate there, you know, you would have met this person here. Maybe you're thinking, look, maybe a bit of advanced warning would have been better. You know, send a few apostles in ahead of you, make a bit of noise, hand out some leaflets, you know, even better, start a PR campaign, you know, get, get a slot on the local uh, radio, um, Jerusalem FM, whatever, uh, get some advertising up on the bus shelters, you know, prepare the way, and then enter, and then people get you, then they're ready. But as it is, it just totally lost momentum. And the crowds, it seems, that were there are so enthusiastic in verse 10. Verse 11, they're gone, right? They're dispersed. It says they went back to Bethany with who? With the 12. Where'd everybody else go? He, they were the only ones left. So disappointing. So, so let's just examine this a bit more closely because I think there are, there are two ways that we can interpret you know, this, this disappointment here, two possibilities to frame the disappointment um, that we see here. Um, first of all, right, uh, what Jesus was doing, what happened there was just hype. It was just hot air. Um, a fad, if you like. A trend, maybe. 
People just got excited about being excited, and, and, and it sort of rose up a bit, and it got a, you know, a head of steam, and then, and then phew, as quickly as it started, it just fell apart, it faded out, because there was nothing substantial, just a big letdown, there was no content, there was no power, there was no clash, just waffle, just subjective rubbish. Jesus has been teaching the kingdom, he's been teaching vision, he's been making promises of things that lay ahead, and maybe all that was just a pile of hype, just made up. He had his moment of fame, his 10 minutes of fame, and then that was it. Maybe you know people, um, maybe you are one, who, who, who gets easily sucked into the, the latest trend, whatever that happens to be. Uh, you can tell I'm not by the way I'm dressed, right? But uh, you know, maybe you know people who get sucked into the latest uh, thing. They buy into all the hype very easily, but it never materializes, and then they're on, they're on to the next thing. Um, a few weeks later, things have fizzled out. So it's very common, isn't it, at this time of the year in January? Uh, people are trying to get fit, you know, go on a big fitness drive, and maybe you know someone in your family you know, who, who is just thinking, right, okay, I've got to get myself in shape. Right? I've just spent all of December eating and drinking and partying. Uh, now I'm going to give it up. I'm going to go veganuary or dry January or whatever drive it is it happens to be. I'm going to get fit. I'm going to buy that thing on QVC that looks really cool or a Peloton if you can afford one of them. I can't. And uh, I'm going to get fit. I'm going to get buff. Gonna go join the gym again. And, uh, and you, you know people who do that. Uh, but you also know that, that you give them a few weeks and that device that they bought on QVC is probably tucked away in the corner or in the garage. Hasn't been used very often. You know, they set off on a good pace, don't they? And eventually they... They come to nothing. So maybe that's what we're seeing here. You know, uh, may, may, maybe these are people who just get easily drawn into the next big thing and then, you know, uh, it just fizzled out to nothing. It happens in churches, uh, I'll have you know. Maybe you've experienced it too, you know, where, where the latest movement, the latest preacher, the latest podcast, or the latest theology, or the latest cause, or whatever it is, and a whole bunch of people just hop on the bandwagon. And then crowds come, they get built up, it's all exciting for about five minutes, and then it fizzles out because it comes to nothing. And dis disappointment always follows. So maybe, first option, this is just a pile of hype that Jesus was just a, a good talker, but there was nothing behind what he was saying. Second option, I think the second frame of interpretation for what's going on here, is not that Jesus was wrong, but, but the crowds were wrong. They got it wrong. See, see there's, a, there's a possibility that they dispersed when they realized that Jesus was not what they hoped for. Right? It's not what they wanted. Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations at that moment. And so they gave up. And they walked away and just went home. He was supposed to be the Messiah. That's the, that's the, uh, the general line, isn't it, from Monty Python's uh, The Life of Brian, an unfortunate chap called Brian gets mistaken for the Messiah. And the whole film follows Brian and, and what a terrible life Brian has. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. That's what they said. Maybe this is just a case of mistaken identity, rather like that. You know, people in Jesus' day would have commonly understood the Messiah, whoever he was, in, in sort of nationalistic terms, the Messiah they took was someone who was going to come, was going to receive the kingdom of God in power, was going to overthrow the oppressors, that is the Romans, and was going to restore the sovereignty and the power and the significance of Israel once again. That's what the Messiah was going to do. And so the crowds, as you can imagine, were buzzing. They thought to themselves, wow, this guy is really it. He's really something. He's got some power. He can do miracles. 
And then he comes, looking like a Messiah, on, on, on a donkey like a king. But when he turned up and he entered Jerusalem, it didn't happen. It didn't materialize. So, so they felt let down by Jesus because he didn't do what they thought he should be doing. And they were disappointed with him. He, he didn't live up to their expectations of what he should be doing. So we have these two possible interpretations. Either Jesus was wrong and it was all a pile of hype, or the crowds were wrong. Right? Either he was all talk, or they got the wrong end of the stick about who he really was. Either way, they were disappointed with Jesus and they fizzled out, went home. I wonder if you have ever experienced disappointment with Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if there, there are moments in your life where you feel that Jesus has just not come through for you. Um, maybe in your church experiences in the past, he hasn't met the expectations that you had for him. And so in some ways, you've become disappointed and started to fizzle out. Maybe you just packed up and went home. As I said, dealing with disappointment, I, I, in my view, is one of the greatest challenges to being a Christian. Here's, here's one maybe slightly uh, small example. But uh, my, my, our, our flat that we used to live in has been on the market uh, for two and a half years. No one's bought it. And we had a buyer at the beginning of October, and we thought, brilliant, someone who's serious is going to buy our flat, and that's just going to release so much uh, financial commitment and so much extra work we have to do to pay for it and all the rest of it. Brilliant. And two months later, a lot of uh, faffing around. Uh, the house sale fell through two days before Christmas. And I was like, great. Thank you, God. Um, two days before Christmas. Why could you not have got this guy to buy our flat, Lord? You know how much difference it would make in our lives, freeing us up to be able to serve and do this and do that and, 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 and redeploy our finances elsewhere. Why, Lord? didn't come through for me. I've had disappointments with work. I've had disappointments with life situations. And of course, I'm tempted to think, Jesus hasn't come through for me. Where were you? What have you been doing? Could you not have just made this happen? And if you, if you like me, have, have, have noticed or experienced disappointment with Jesus... There is an option that you have to ask in any given moment. Is Jesus just all hype? Or am I the one who's got things muddled up? Is Jesus wrong or am I wrong? Because if we're not careful, rather like the crowds, we can sort of requisition Jesus for our service. We understand that he's someone who does what we want. He fulfills my needs. And right now, he's not acting the way I think he should be. And so I'm disappointed. I'm gutted. But here's the thing I've learnt, uh, too slowly in my view, but I've learnt that if Jesus is only allowed to act the way I think he should act, then I will always be disappointed. If he is only allowed to act in the way that we think he should act, then we will always be disappointed. Yes, he's come to help us, 
Praise God. Yes, he has come to satisfy our deepest desires. Praise God. Yes, he has come to bless us and give us gifts. Amen. But first of all, he is your king. So you must, first of all, as must I, as must the crowds, recognize that he is over you as your king. So do you just come to Jesus for whatever he gives you? Fine, do that. That's okay. Nothing wrong in that. But first and foremost, we have to see him for who he is. So if you are currently experiencing disappointment with Jesus, God in general perhaps, then why don't you use that right now as an opportunity to re-evaluate what you understand about him. To to ask, what what is the root of my disappointment? What is driving my disappointment, my frustration with God? And if you want to be really honest, you can stand in front of a mirror and ask yourself, am I king over Jesus? Or is he king over me? Can't be both. Disappointment with Jesus. But thankfully, that's not where he leaves us. Amen? Thirdly and finally, then, there is a surprise. The surprise of Jesus. There's a surprise in this text. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He does come to overthrow the enemies. That much is clear. But the surprise is that he does not behave as we would expect him to. That's the surprise. He doesn't do it in the way that we think he should be. It's sort of hidden in the text, right? It's suggested. Um, The fact that a donkey is carrying him into Jerusalem and not a a white war horse goes to show that the donkey is the best they could do. As I mentioned earlier, donkeys were a lot easier to come by. Horses were incredibly expensive and only really ridden by people of great means or great you know, um, connections to, to royalty, for example. He got a donkey and it wasn't even his. They had to borrow it and give it back. We'll, we'll return it to you immediately, say the disciples. And it didn't even have any bits and pieces that came with it. They had to throw their cloaks and their garments over it so that it was tolerable for him to ride. The rest threw their cloaks on the ground. Some chopped down some leafy branches. The crowds made a bit of noise. There's no doubt about that. But the whole scene itself was thoroughly lacking any sort of regal splendor. Right? If you if you imagine Her Majesty the Queen going going down you know the central avenues in London, you know that she is flanked by all these you know um, uh, people in their regalia, uh, all these sort of uh, official uh, dignitaries, security. Before and after, she's in this magnificent carriage pulled by you know, millions of horses, all the rest of it. And here is Jesus, the king, on a donkey. There's no royal retinue, there's no elaborate, elaborate garments, no crown for his head, no musicians, no welcoming committees, nothing. He got there, they'd all gone home. Yes, there is unmistakable symbolism in what he's doing, drawing on some of these themes from Old Testament prophets. But we can't escape the fact that it's all very ordinary. It's very simple. It's almost like they've chucked it together at the last minute. Add to that then the huge anticlimax in verse 11, and we're left asking ourselves, what is all this about? 
It's kind of an embarrassing ending, really, for Jesus. We feel just awkward for him. The crowds were left, had left, rather, just the 12 remained, and there they wander back to base, as if nothing had, had really happened. See, for, for many people in the crowd on that day, his disciples and you know, wider followers, that was the moment of glory for Jesus. And he blew it. You know, he didn't come through with the goods. He failed. He stuffed it up. But for Jesus, it was just a sign. You see? It was just a sign pointing to the real moment of glory that he was heading towards. And it, his moment of glory didn't happen how the crowds expected. It certainly didn't happen how they wanted. Because for Jesus, as we will see, the next step for him was the cross. Right? It, wasn't, it wasn't the throne, it was the cross. It was suffering, it was condemnation, it was betrayal, it was execution. That was the next step. And he knew what he was getting into as he entered Jerusalem. And yet he pushed forward on mission. The crowds fell away. Less and less people stuck with Jesus the closer and closer he got to the cross until he was there on his own. Even, even his closest friends, his disciples, dispersed, they abandoned him, one betrayed him. See, that lonely journey that Jesus makes, that was his greatest moment. And so here's the surprise. Jesus, the King, the Messiah, he exercises his power by taking on shame and sorrow. He exercises his power by being humbled to death, even death on a cross. The crowds thought, of course, as we would, that power meant violence, it meant destruction, it meant forming an army, overcoming the Romans, pushing them out, declaring war, humbling them. That's how most of us would understand power in our day and age, some form of that. But here's the surprise. Jesus exercised that power through humility. Just, just remarkable. No one has ever done that before. You see, when we look at the cross, we see that the king, Jesus, laid down his life for his people. On the cross, Jesus went to battle for his people. Most kings, you know, send their, their, their people out to fight for the king's behalf, for his glory. But this king did it differently. He went to the cross alone. He went into battle by himself. He took on your greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil, and on the cross, Jesus beat them all. He took your sins to the grave. He, he, he took your punishment of your sin upon himself. No one was expecting that. It is utterly glorious. That's Jesus' finest moment. See, when we look at the cross, our disappointment with Jesus can be overturned because it kills off the idea that Jesus is not for you, that he hasn't come for you, that he won't help you. When we look at the cross, we see that that, that stuff just isn't true. Of course he's come for you. Of course he is for you. Of course he has tackled your enemies. When we look at the cross, our expectations of Jesus are realized. 
Right? The more than realize they are surpassed. Because it's through the cross that that kingdom that he was talking about and demonstrating, through the cross that kingdom comes. It couldn't come any other way, right? Because there is, that is the only way to deal with the stuff that keeps you out of the kingdom was through the cross of Jesus. Otherwise you couldn't come in, otherwise I couldn't come in. The cross is the only way you and I can be allowed access to the kingdom of God. No other way. So when we understand the surprising thing about Jesus, the surprising exercise of his power through service, it shapes our view of who he is. Right? He is the servant and he's the king. He is the lion and he's the lamb. He is God and he's a human being just like us. So allow Jesus to define himself through his words and his actions to you. Don't do it the other way around. Don't define Jesus by your actions and your words and your hopes for who he should be. You'll get it the right way around when you look at the cross. Okay, so it shapes our view of Jesus, but secondly, it shapes the way we live our life for Jesus. Because when, when, when we see how the greatest power this world has ever seen, when, when, when we see how that power is exercised through servant-hearted humility, then are we not called to go and do likewise? If he did that for us, Shouldn't we do that for one another? For other people? For those who don't deserve it, right? For the poor and the lowly out there? So when you understand that, when you understand how power is exercised through humility, it frees us of our efforts to grasp at power however we do it, or, or to use our power to topple others from their positions of power. That's how the world does it, right? That's how we often do it ourselves, in the workplace, in the family, out there, in whichever realm you are engaged, online perhaps. But when you see the cross and you realize how power is exercised through humility, it frees you of that rubbish. It stops us feeling the need to use anger or manipulation or threats or control or rage or violence or coercion or anything like that. Instead, we use the power, responsibility, and authority God has given us with humility to serve, not to be served. Laying our life down for other people is the core of what it means to be a Christian. Right? We lay our lives down first for God, God first, others second, laying our lives down just as Christ gave his life for us. So as we swing into 2022, we're praying, aren't we, as a church, for power. We're praying for resources. We were doing that earlier. We're praying for people. We're praying for influence. And yet we must remember, as a community on mission, we exercise the influence that God gives us with humility, right? As servants, Because it's only through the cross of the king that we'll be truly free. Amen. Let's, let's pray.